We are going to be talking about the Dragon Riders of Pern book series and possible adaptations. Dragon Riders of Pern is rife with various trigger warnings, including for violence, consent issues, hoboy consent issues, uh, suicide, all sorts of things like that. So uh, if that sort of thing would upset you badly, maybe skip this episode. Hey there, Internet. I'm Annie. I'm Kit. And I'm Mac. And this is I Will Fight You, a podcast where we have been turning opinion into stone-cold facts since 1986. Today's fact, the world is not ready for a Dragon Riders of Pern movie. It really is not. It's it's weird, guys. Pern is weird. I love Pern. It's delightful. It's like a nostalgic trip for me. Let's start off by explaining what exactly it is we're talking about. Okay, Pern, the Dragon Riders of Pern, is a science fiction series set in the future where humans settled a far-off planet labeled P-E-R-N by the resource survey team, Parallel Earth Resources Negligible, to help with overcrowding back home. Except we don't actually know any of that when the book starts, because it seems like, for all intents and purposes, a fantasy series about people that have telepathic links to dragons on a different planet, and then slowly the sci-fi stuff and the history actually creeps back in. Yeah, when you, if you only read the Dragonflight Quartet or the Harper Hall trilogy, you're like, what are you talking about? This is, they're dragons and people ride them and fight bad stuff that falls from the sky. And then a special young man with a white dragon finds a computer. And fixes it. And tells him lyrics from the 60s. And they learn that people genetically engineer dragons to fight the threat because that's the best thing you do whenever you have things falling from the sky that just devours anything organic. Right, as far as I remember, this is our bad guy? Yeah, the main villain of the series isn't really a villain. It's a natural phenomenon. The reason that all these people are telepathically bonded to dragons is because there's this mysterious red star that shows up every 200 to 400 years. The 400 years is a plot point. And that just drops these flesh-devouring grub things called threads on the planet. And the only way to stop them is to incinerate them midair with dragons. Because of course it is. You know, sounds legit. This is the easiest possible solution, only later we find out it was not. And so, like, the whole society is kind of based on who can fight this menace and who can't. So they develop these things called weirs, which is where dragons live, as well as uh, their dragon riders and anybody who kind of works with them, like the head lady. And then uh, they have holds, which are beholden quote-unquote, to the weirs, um, where it's basically cities without dragon riders, and they kind of, they farm, or there's, uh, I think, Istin does mining. Yeah, there are a few weirs around, and a few holds, and they kind of circle the globe. The holds basically provide food to the weirs, because I guess you can't farm for food when you spend all your time raising and training dragons. So, obviously, Mac is very knowledgeable about Pern. Kid is as well. I'm actually not really. I read like the first three or four books. It it ended with like some kid on a dragon reciting lyrics from the birds at the end. And uh, that was kind of it for me. After that, I just sort of checked out of the Pern series. I couldn't really tell you why. It's not that it was like bad, but uh, but you guys know way more about Pern than I do. I read every single Pern book, and then uh, at the age of 14-ish, I discovered there was an online role-playing 
a set of people who played Pern, basically play by email. And so I joined one of those sites, uh, created characters, and then I role played Pern for like the next three years and obsessively read every book about Pern, including getting the Encyclopedia of Pern, the Dragons, the Dragon Lover's Guide to Pern. That's what it's called. Um, so I read that religiously. And I even helped run a uh, we're hold, quote unquote, online, where I helped set up the characters, approve characters and get people playing. Was this like your first big RP experience? Because that's something you like you are my my RP friend. That is like your big thing to me. You're my RP and serial killer friend. Yeah, that was like my first ever experience uh, role playing like ever. And you did that via email correspondence. We, we are old. Yeah, it was that was uh, you'd send somebody an email paragraph, they'd reply with an email paragraph, and then you'd post it on a Yahoo groups for everybody to read. And it's also important to note that this was borderline illegal back then. It was, and McCaffrey would actually maybe shut you down. But yeah, we'll get into that later. So it was a secret role play. It was like secret and it was like underground and we were like spies and ninjas, I guess, of role playing. Kid, what was what was your deal with Pern? My deal with Pern was that my mom was big into Pern, and I saw I started pulling stuff off the shelf when I ran out of, out of my own reading material. And one of those was, I believe, Dragonflight. And upon reflection, I should not have been reading that at eleven years old, but here we are. And from there, the damage was done, and I kept reading a bunch of them, basically up until the skies of Pern. And then I think I stopped reading the series. See, my first book was uh, the Littlest Dragon Boy. And I read it because it was seventh grade English. Uh, we were reading something like The Day No Pigs Would Die. And I had already finished the book and everybody else was slowly puttering through it. So I just started reading other stories in our English and the like the big English book we got in seventh grade. And one of them was The Littlest Dragon Boy. And I, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is everything I ever want as a seventh grader. Oh, wow. So they seeded that. Yeah. See, I just I just like was picking up books with dragons on them from the middle school library. Well, it was about dragons and it was in my English book, so... Right, so obviously it was the it was the greatest thing ever. It was sandwiched right in there between Flowers for Algernon and... Flowers for Algernon and Cold Equations. And what's that one by, I think, Bradbury, where everybody in the future has to be peaceful and be kind of dumb? I mean, to be fair, I think, I think the future is maybe not what we wanted it to be, is the thesis of most of Bradbury's works. Anyway, um, that, that was all, most of my involvement with with Pern, although I did also play the RPG, which was not good. Like a like a tabletop RPG? That's 2001 video game RPG. Ubisoft did it for the Dreamcast and PC. It was not good. Wow, did they just like put that out after they finished the latest Panzer Dragoon? I do not know. I know that it exists. I don't know any further details than that. I had no idea. However, it is notable for having a fairly anatomically correct dragon in it. Uh... No, not, not anatomically correct in the way you're thinking. Oh. As in, it looked like something that could realistically exist and fly. They put a lot of work into the dragon, like, launching and flying animations. And then everyone's face was, like, sort of horrible and blank and detailed and not. They know where their priorities lay. It's like Swan Princess. The operative word was teeth. That was always such a pet peeve for me when I was reading like fantasy books as a kid was like this, this, the style of dragon that you're presenting to me. It doesn't look like it could realistically fly. Why does it even have those wings? What are you doing? I had a fraught relationship with Pete's dragon, which is like, have you guys seen the, uh, the Lego elves stuff? Yeah. Yes. Have you seen wave two? I have not. 
because Wave 2 has dragons in it and they actually look like they are actually muscled creatures that could fly. Like they have big wings that are big enough for uh, for that. And it is everything eight-year-old me wanted. Wow, 12-year-old me would be super into that. Oh my God. It's like they, they reached into the past and designed that crap specifically for me. And it is really hard to not just buy the whole thing. Especially when the Lego dragons used to be like, I share a head with the crocodile and you can put a flame in my mouth. So one of the reasons that we uh, that we brought up uh, Dragon Riders of Pern today is because uh, in 2014, Warner Brothers uh, optioned the rights for all Pern books. And we we just don't think that's going to turn out well. First off, because they've tried to adapt a Pern movie before. Like they have been since probably since like the 70s or 80s. They've been trying to get this thing off the ground. I mean, you can kind of see why, right? There's like there's there's been a million books. And the fandom's pretty widespread. Yeah, and they're pretty popular, so that's, that's going to bring in a good thing. And then, plus, you just add dragons, and you're going to at least get anybody under 12 involved. Especially 12-year-old girls. Though you don't want anybody under 12 involved in this. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of dragon f***ing. There's a lot of dragon f***ing and a lot of regular f***ing. This is one of the only things I remember from the first book. There's a girl, she used to be in a hold, and then she got a dragon, and then her dragon goes out to fly and f***. And then it turns out when your dragon fucks, you fuck. Yeah, that's a thing that happens. Every time two characters have sex, it cuts away to their dragons, who are also having sex. In in midair, if I recall? In midair. And uh, there have been incidences in the past where dragons actually crash while fucking. Um, and that's actually a bad sign because it tends to kill the dragons because they aren't prepared for the fall. So at least badly injures them. And when dragons are near injured, they go between, which actually that's the thing we haven't talked about. So dragons can teleport. Oh my God. I forgot. Yeah, the dragons in this can teleport. We forgot to mention. It's so normalized in the books that we forgot this was weird. Basically, they and their rider just have to visualize a location and then they fly between a place that's that's called between. And generally, they're there for three beats. One, two, three. And then they'll snap out into the location they can. Between is an area of nothingness, which is freezing cold and you just can't sense or feel anything, even your own body. So it's kind of maddening to be there. So when a dragon gets injured, they'll often just go between and just die forever. And then their dragon rider just freaks out and often commits suicide yeah if a dragon dies the rider usually dies and if the rider dies the dragon definitely dies if you die on the dragon you die in real life okay okay can we just can we just the dragons are night crawlers they just bamf all over the fucking planet and sometimes they do it when they fuck. also the whole plot of like the first book that most people read is that Dragon riders have become so minimal that they have a hard time keeping up when Thread comes back. And so the new dragon rider, Lessa, who is the one that Annie was mentioning who f**ks somebody. Yeah, that narrows it down. uh, Realizes that they can travel back in time by going between two, so long as you visualize the right thing. So she finds a tapestry of the hold she grew up in, describing the hold at like each layer, like every 50 years. And she uses that to travel back in time and then bring the other dragons forward. Which is why all the dragons disappeared in the first place. It's very convoluted, especially for a first book in a series. It's great. I love it. Oh my god, I remember that! Yeah, it's great! We'll get into more of the weird shit later. Yeah, the adaptation history of this is pretty fraught, because like I said, they've been trying to adapt this thing since the 70s and the 80s and attempt to do so actually turned into a, a cartoon called Princess Guinevere and the Jewel Riders. Right, right. Like, what was what spurred our decision that we really need to talk about Pern? 
was because apparently this cartoon from the 90s that I remember called Princess Guinevere or Princess Starla and the Jewel Riders. It was originally a Pern adaptation. And it's like, I loved the show when I was a kid, mostly because it's kind of like a tokusatsu, like a Power Rangers thing. But they're girls and they have magic talking animals. Which I guess were originally telepathic dragons. No, dude, I watched the first episode of this with, like, the idea in mind that this used to be a Pern thing. First off, all of the animals are telepathic. So our, our main character, Guinevere slash Starla, in the first episode, it's like, she's going to go to a, a ceremony, the Circle of Friendship or something, where she will receive her own very special animal companion. And once she can, she'll be able to hear that animal because it'll speak to her telepathically. And she'll also be able to hear all of the other animals that speak to them telepathically, because that's a thing. If you're not, like, initiated, you can't hear the telepathic animals. And you have to have a special jewel for this. So it's not like you, like, you know, see the dragon when it hatches and you, and you like, imprint on it. It's just, like, you get a special jewel that also lets you transform into a Sentai hero. And, like, it's the telepathic animal stuff in particular that sounds like this is stuff that carried over from Pern, because, like, there there are no talking animals. They're all telepathic. And they're specially bonded. Yeah, except it's not just dragons. Like, our main character gets, like, a... She gets a very special animal friend that's, like, a, that's an alicorn, like, you know, a flying unicorn thing. There's a pack of boys who have special telepathic bonds with giant wolves, which is rad. And I swear to God, like, the way the boy looks strikes me a lot as, like, the way the covers of Pern books looked. Watching it in that context is bizarre. Anyway, after Princess Guinevere and the Jewel Riders, there was also, there was going to be a TV show, and then there was going to be a movie, and then there was going to be a TV show again. And when they say they signed David Hayter as screenwriter, they mean the voice actor of Solid Snake. What? Yes. Okay, so at one point, David Hayter, voice actor of Solid Snake was going to be the screenwriter of a Dragon Riders of Pern movie, and then that did not get off the ground. The same David Hayter? Yeah. Does he have any screenwriting experience? I do not know. Oh my gosh! Anyway, yeah, that that fizzled out, like, in 2011, and then in 2014, Warner Brothers brought on a screenwriter to adapt the first movie based on the, uh, on the books. And yeah, this nothing good will come of this. Because, for one thing, as mentioned, the fact that when any two characters f*** their dragons also f***. Well, not every time. Just most of the time. Just whenever there's a flight going on, the characters will f*** what their dragon is f***ing. Unless they do some setup beforehand. Now, that sounded like a capital F flight. Is that a, is that a term? There's a lot of capital letter things in here. A flight is when a dragon, either a gold or a green dragon, because those are the female dragons will take off in uh, a mating sort of thing. Only the gold can get pregnant, the green can't, um, because they're engineered that way, and they'd be like rabbits, basically, and kind of fill the world with too many dragons. Yeah, greens only give birth to greens for some reason. Yeah, so when a dragon takes off in flight, uh, all the male dragons will kind of take off after it. So in the case of queens, the gold ones, it's generally bronzes and browns. And in the cases of the greens, which are smaller, it's generally blues and browns. So browns get kind of... Mutual f***ing here. The writer of the female and the writer of the male tend to get together. Oh, isn't that nice? I was obsessed with this when I was, like, 13. The dragons are rigidly gender-segregated by color, by the way, in case you couldn't tell from that. Greens and golds are female. The rest of the colors, uh, blue, brown, and bronze, are male. Although I do want to point out that because of some vintage sexism for a long time, greens had male riders, 
So when a green and another dragon mated, the, the two riders, even though they were both dudes, still had to have sex. And this is because of some weird beliefs that Anne McCaffrey had about homosexuality that I'll get into into a little bit later. But the point is that, that, that this is so well thought out and so detailed in the books will not translate well to film. So they still f- They still f*** each other? They still f*** each other. Uh-huh. 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 Oh, and uh, by the way, it should be obvious, but uh, our special main character from the first book, she uh, she gets a gold dragon. She gets the last gold dragon. This is important. And also, on top of that, the other thing is she has a special ability, uh, which we in the Pern role-playing fandom called Hear All Dragons. So she can hear and talk to all dragons telepathically. And does that extend to all the tiny dragons that are running around, too, that are the leftover genetic experimentations? Uh, she can talk to the fire lizards, yes, to a degree. Although the fire lizards don't really talk. They, they more think in quick flittering images, which Melanie, who is the star of the Harper Hall trilogy series, like everybody's looking for fire lizards at this point, and she accidentally stumbles upon like a, a clutch of 12, and she impresses, I think, like nine of them. Or maybe it's ten, nine or ten. Um, but she impresses all nine or ten of them, including a little queen fire lizard and several bronze fire lizards. And so basically, uh, she has a lot of fire lizards. Yeah, the fire lizards are um, native to Pern. They are what the dragons were made out of. Basically, the genetic scientists took the fire lizards and made them big. I still like love this idea that the bioengineers, that they couldn't be arsed to remember any secondary sex characteristics. So they just color coded them. That's Anne McCaffrey's fault. That's the fire lizards, too. The fire lizards are the same way. Except for the fire lizard greens actually have eggs and lay clutches and have lots of greens. Because they haven't sterilized themselves by chewing the stuff that makes them breathe fire. Yeah, by the way, gold dragons don't usually fly and breathe fire because the stuff that makes them breathe fire makes them sterile. And actually, they think that's what it is, but it turns out that the green dragons were just genetically engineered to be sterile. It wasn't actually the fire thing. That's just the common belief in Dragon Weir context around the third pass, which is when Lessa is. But it's not true. They were genetically engineered to be sterile. Okay, so 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 we've got this this Lessa person. There's also uh like an like the next generation they get into that and there's like a special boy named Jackson who gets a white dragon. Oh boy. <laughs> And it's the special and most beautiful dragon of them all. And then he finds a space computer. Yeah, this is where it gets weird. And the fact that we've told you everything we've just told you, and now I'm saying this is where it gets weird is a bad sign. So Jackson impresses the white dragon, Ruth. There's like this tiny shrimpy egg that everyone's pretty sure won't hatch, and it doesn't hatch at an impression. But Jackson is a lord holder, um, or he's in line to be the next lord holder of Rotha Hold. And uh, he's like, oh my gosh, why is nobody helping that egg that's rocking and not getting out? And they're like, well, that means the dragon's too weak. It's not going to be strong enough to fly. And so Jackson, uh, the beautiful boy that he is, climbs out of the stands and runs over and breaks the egg open and helps the little twisted white dragon out, meets its eyes, and he becomes impressed to uh, the white dragon Ruth, even though he's supposed to be an ex-lord holder, and this causes chaos. You know, you know, Mac, you're not as familiar in, uh, with Warcraft as, uh, as Kit and I are. Kit, do you, do you remember Madan? Yep. He is the son of Garona Half-Orkin, who's Half-Orc and Half-Denai, and his dad is Medivh, the, uh, the guardian of Tears Falls. So Madan is like a quarter Janai and a quarter Orc and half-human slash half-guardian, and he can do every single magic. Yep. 
the character from the comics that uh, that I swear to God, somebody at Blizzard was on vacation and then they came back and said, oh, time to open up the comics. Da, 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 da. What the fuck am I looking at? And then Madon died on the way back to his home planet and we never talked about him again. Yeah. Uh, this uh, is down in this Jackson thing. It's just sounding sound a little familiar. Jackson is kind of a special snowflake character in, in a world full of special snowflake characters. Not least of all, because he is the character that suddenly changes the genre of the books from epic space fantasy to hard science fiction. He's the one that finds the supercomputer that the colonists left behind. And that's when we find out the whole colonist plot. I love it. And I have to admit, if they were to make a Pern TV show, this would make a great season ender. But it's still really weird. Just a hard left for the entire series. So I guess we should probably lay out in like very specific lines why this won't work. Yeah, we've, we've talked a little about the dragon f***ing. Yeah, the dragon f***ing is really the least of our worries because there have been weirder things on TV, let's be honest. Yeah, there have been. Okay, so 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 I'm I'm a little weirded out on uh, on Pern anyway, but uh, okay, I'm a network executive. Here I go. But 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 um, I've got a big business suit. I've got a cigar, probably. I want to make another Game of Thrones. I want to beat Game of Thrones at its own game, and this Shannara Chronicles crap isn't really selling. So I find that there is another series that I want to make. There's going to be a lot of unfortunate acts to female characters that I'm going to adapt into into be non-consensual. There's a lot of violence that I'm going to overplay. Uh, I'm going to have a lot of people telling me it was historically accurate, even though it takes place on a space fantasy planet. And Pern looks good to me. Convince me why this won't work. Well, for one thing. It's not going to be Game of Thrones because it's not fantasy. In fact, about two or three seasons in, we're going to change the genre of the show completely. Uh, from then on, it's going to be hard science fiction, and the entire show is going to be about planetary cooperation towards getting rid of the giant red star that keeps dropping death on the planet. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Can I give the red star, can I give it a character? Can I give it a face? No, no, it's just a planet. It's just a very small planet that has a very erratic orbit that shows up every 200 years and is dragging stuff from the Oort cloud behind it and dropping it on the planet. Uh-huh. And everyone is just really focused on getting rid of this big red star. And there's a supercomputer that teaches them all the science they need to know and how to get rid of the big red star. So in the course of like two or three years, this goes from like a Bronze Age society to a spacefaring society. Uh-huh. What, what about the dragons? Oh, the dragons. The dragons are based on an indigenous species that the colony geneticists blew up to be big, basically. When we find out the past, we find that they took the fire lizards, which are about the length of like your forearm, right? And uh, they're going to use the genetics to turn this uh, fire lizard into a thing about the size of a VW bug. And then over the course of the next hundred years, they're going to grow so large that they would smash the original dragons. So by the time we actually start right, the, the gold dragon is going to be the size of like a full football field. All right, all right. You know we can uh, we can get some uh, we can give some guys some mocap suits for that. We got our we got our main character. She's a girl. She's a girl. Uh, she looks a little like uh, like other fantasy girls in Game of Thrones. Uh, she's she's poor. She's downtrodden. She's our Cinderella story, and she's sexy. Um, no, she's actually kind of skinny and unappealing and hungry. She's like five feet tall because she's noted for being super short. Big, br- giant breasts. Uh, no, she's actually noted for being uh, pretty small-breasted, too, because she's only, like, uh, as well-fed as, like, a 12-year-old. They state that specifically? It does state that specifically in the first book, Dragonflight. 
She's supposed to inherit the hold where she's living, but it was taken over by a tyrant. Uh, and then later on, she just kills the shit out of him. I, I like it. I like it. We like violence. Yeah, um, but it's okay because uh, his favorite wife um, and her favorite wife, the only the only nice wife he had, has a baby known as Jackson. He's going to become relevant later. She lets him live because she likes the baby and the wife. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then they f- No, no. She f***s Falar, who's a bronze dragon rider and also the leader of a nearby weir. Okay. Okay. Also, the first time they f*** is rape. <laughs> The networks love that. But she 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 grows to like it because she grows to fall in love with Flar because he's so majestic. The networks love non-consensual fucking. This is perfect. This is character development. Oh, and then we introduce the time travel. The what now? The dragons can teleport and teleport not only through space, but also time. Yeah, of six dragon weirs spread out all over the continent, there's only one left because the rest of them all mysteriously disappeared 400 years ago at the end of the last thread pass. So at the new thread pass starts, which nobody believed it was going to because usually it's every 200 years, but this time it was 400 years because of reasons. Because of the erratic pattern of the red star. Yeah, and Lessa decides that she needs more dragons. So she actually goes back in time 400 years, gets the rest of the dragons, and brings them forward 400 years. And that's why they disappeared. Now, I might be a simple, high-powered business executive for television, but that seems like a self-fulfilling, pointless thing. Yes, it is. But that's okay. The audience will probably love it. Okay, look, the book was only 100 pages long at this point. We needed more stuff. Okay, 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 okay. So, so we focused the first season. We've got the dragons. We've got time travel, I guess. We've got dragons. We've got dragons f***ing. We've got little dragons. We've got adventures. Actually, there's no adventures. Most of the first book is just sitting around, honestly. Yeah, it really honestly is. Hmm. Hmm. Um. Hmm. Uh. Uh. <coughs> Sheila? She- Sheila? Sheila? Uh, cancel my 12. Uh, I- I don't think- I don't think this is gonna work. I think we gotta shut it down. What? Yeah. Yeah, no, the dragon thing- yeah. No, alright, alright, uh. Alright. Reschedule the gummy bears, okay? We'll, we'll make that one work. All right, all right. Anyway, uh, this has been great. This has been a this has been a lovely uh, lovely meeting, folks. But uh, but I, I I just don't think this is going to be a good fit for our network. Have we talked about how weird this shit is? This is so fucking weird. <laughs> and honestly, the main thing killing Dragonflight is the fact that it's mostly just sitting around. Do they just do they just like the setting? They like the idea. Did they have they just looked at the pulpy covers and they're like, this seems legit? Probably. Probably. Yeah. So I remember Anne McCaffrey, she started co-writing some of these books with her son. He sort of picked up all of her series like posthumously after after Anne passed. Yeah. After Anne uh, McCaffrey died in, I want to say in like 2006, 2007. Oh, she actually died in 2011. Oh, that recently. But she handed off the series to him before that, I think. So he's been sort of picking this up where she left off. Have you guys read those? Do you know if uh, do you know if it's largely the same or? I kind of stopped reading when Todd took over because his writing was so different and I didn't like it as much. And I'm a hipster of Pern. You're a Pernster. And I stopped reading it quite a bit before he took over. So, but yeah, he's he's just he's writing more dragon books, a lot of them. Wait, so Pern books are still happening? Uh, starting in 2003, he started helping. And he has written or co-written one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight books. And there's another book in progress right now. They're still happening? Why are they still happening? 
I mean, even Dragonlance books have petered off and they have like a whole stable. I don't know. I honestly think it's because Todd McCaffrey doesn't have that much going on. You know, if there's one thing I really respect about Rihanna Pratchett is that she put her foot down very solidly about how like, no, I'm not. No, Discworld is no, no, that was my father's thing. That is I, I am not my father. It is done. Isn't she involved in like the City Guard adaptation they're doing, though? We Free Men, actually. She was working on the screenplay adaptation. So, so Pern. Pern is, Pern is weird. So we should probably discuss the many weird things in Pern that we haven't already discussed. Oh, God, is there more? There's more. There's more. There's always more. Oh, my God. Such as what I was going to lead off with. The dolphins have been genetically modified to be human intelligent. Stop. There's an entire book called The Dolphins of Pern, and there's a dragon on the cover and a dolphin on the cover. Yeah, and they're like jumping along next to each other. Stop. No. Yes. Human and why? The dolphins can talk. Why? Why did they do that? Why did they say we're making giant dragons that can telepathically communicate? What else can we f with? Because it was 1994 and Lisa Frank had started to be a thing. Exactly. God damn it. God damn it, Lisa Frank. Okay. So, so telepathic, telepathic dragons and, and human intelligence. Did, are the dolphins also telepathic? Uh, sort of. What do the dolphins do with their human intelligence? They can kind of talk to you, uh, but mostly once the humans fall back into the Stone Age, they just kind of go into the middle of the ocean and live their lives. Do they have a dolphin society? Do they produce literature? That part, I don't know. But eventually, when they start getting technology back, the dolphins kind of come back and are like, oh, good, you're back. Yay. Did they just leave the planet and say so long and thanks for all the fish? They just kind of hang out. So sea crafters, um, they're the people who are in the holds. I think it's the hold is actually the island hold. Um, but anyway... I'm still on the dolphins in my head. The sea crafters work with the sea, and there are uh, stories and fables among them that if you find one of the dolphins, they'll help you out and you can even talk to them. But everybody just thinks this is them being. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is this is this thing. This is the thing that is unbelievable on this planet of nightcrawler bamfing dragons who can talk to you. And also when you f they f talking dolphins is totally unbelievable. I would like to point out that um, this whole thing with engineering the dragons to fight Thread turns out to be completely f***ing pointless about halfway through the entire series. What? They get to the southern continent and realize that the colonists also genetically engineered a species of grub that eats Thread. Yeah, once it hits the ground. So the entire southern continent is overrun with these grubs that eat Thread. And as a result, the southern continent is entirely untouched by Thread. Thread has not had the opportunity to basically devour the entire planet like they expected it would. I'm imagining, like, these two groups of scientists, they come to this Pern world, they're like, okay, okay, let's, uh, let's, let's start the meeting, we have our ideas, we have all of our suggestions and theories for how to combat this thread thing and make this planet, like, livable. And, uh, one of them says, alright, let's make fucking dragons that burn thread to death, we make them breathe fire, and they're all like, yeah! And this guy says, uh... Actually, we just have to develop this grub. It's much cheaper. It's uh, it's much more environmentally sound. Uh, we just leave it be, and it'll just uh, it'll eat everything before it can uh, before it can destroy the planet. And they're all like dragons. That's about what happened. So he goes off to the uh, southern continent, and makes his grubs and quiet and peace. Well, actually, when the colonists landed, they started on the southern continent, and then they moved to the north because it was rockier and thread eats flesh and organic material. Yeah, so they wanted to hide in the rocks so the thread couldn't eat them. All right. Hit me, what's next? 
Okay, I also want to point out, as as mentioned before, they solved the thread problem. They needed to prove that the dragon riders still had a purpose. So I guess they decided that from now on the dragons are going to telekinetically alter the path of asteroids that come at the planet. They what? Look, it didn't make any more sense while I was reading it, okay? Oh yeah, the dragons have telekinesis now, too. What? When did that happen? Why telekinesis? Well, they're already telepaths, so... So this is like a Jean Grey thing? Yeah. Do uh, any of them uh, merge with the Phoenix Force while we're at it? Not not quite. Although, on a somewhat related note, I do want to point out that that supercomputer we mentioned... Yeah? Um, it commits suicide. Yeah, it does. It what? It decides after it's imparted a bunch of knowledge to the to the people on Pern that they will become too dependent on it if it continues to exist, so it shuts itself down. I remember the computer dying, but I distinctly don't remember I am now your dad and I've taught you all I can. Blech. I don't remember that part. That that was a distinct part. I just remember Jackson being sad that the computer died and then he flies around and then he recites a song from the birds. Uh, really triumphantly over Pern, and that's like the end of Pern for me. But the computer kills itself. Yes. There are also uh, a creature known as Weir Beasts, or Hold Beasts, I think, that were developed from these fire lizards. They were the first attempt at dragons, and they're just like these uh, disjointed, lumpy dragon-like lizard creatures without wings, and they were known as a failure, but they can still be telepathic and they protect holds. People put them on the outset and treat them badly, just so that way they will attack anybody who isn't supposed to come into the hold. That seems like a heavy-handed metaphor. Yeah, there's there's a lot going on here. So did Anne McCaffrey, did she have this sci-fi thing planned out from, uh, from the start, or did she just... Uh... The way I remember Dragonflight, there were elements of you look back on it and you go, oh, this was hints at the sci-fi thing. But I don't know. Basically, the start of every book was always like... In the Beetlejuice uh, sector, uh, along star sea, there is a planet, third planet from the sun of that star, titled P-E-R-N, Parallel Earth Resources Negligible. And on this planet, there are dragons. And that's the start of every book. But it sounds like this is the opening to a savage sci-fi thing and not a hard sci-fi thing. Yeah, I'm like, I can I can definitely see savage sci-fi getting into here, but like, so, so they go into space? Like, how does this turn, like, really hard sci-fi? Well, uh, after they discover the supercomputer, the supercomputer lays out a plan to basically knock the Red Star onto a different orbit. And they do that by using the three colony ships that are still in orbit around the planet. There's there's what? The, the, the three spaceships are still up there. And they always thought they were just stars that circled really fast, basically. And the White Dragon actually goes to one of them. It, it, it does? Of course Ruth goes there. They teleport to the to the spaceships because the supercomputer has a video feed there. And the white dragon's like, oh, I can get there. No problem. And just goes boop. Yep. And uh, Jackson and Ruth go there. Hmm. Is there uh, is there still oxygen? Um. Yes and no. Dragons can hold their breath a long time, apparently. Like Guybrush Threepwood. Yeah. So, so they go live on the colony ships? No, they stay on the planet. They use the engines of the colony ships to basically blow up a fissure on the Red Star, which is actually just a, a planet or a planetoid. And knock it onto a different orbit so that this will be the last thread pass. There will be no more thread. And that's when they start telekinetically destroying uh, destroying asteroids. Exactly. Although they don't destroy the first one. That one hits. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. 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 Uh, what the hell are the rest of these books about? The, most of them take place, like, inside the other books or around the other books. So it's, like, in the past. 
Okay, so it's like uh, so it's like Metroid Fusion, where they sort of wrote themselves into a hole, and they're like, "Well, we can't keep going on with this stupid outfit." Uh, where Samus now has has Metroid blood and Chozo blood, so uh, you know it takes place uh, it takes place before that. It's fine. So it's like that. Yeah, there's a lot of books that I think uh, the Harper Hall trilogy actually takes place around the same time as the original trilogy. And that one's just all about this girl who gets a bunch of fire lizards and don't you want a fire lizard? And it's very buyer playsets and toys, except there's no playsets and toys. That's harsh. Melanie really wants to be a harper, but her family wants her to be a seer crafter. So her family like gets her actually injured and her mom uh, heals her hand wrong so that she can't play her harp anymore. And so Melanie runs away and that's when she finds the fire lizards. And then she's discovered by Master Robinton, who is basically the coolest character in the series. And um, he takes her in and takes her back to the harper hall where she becomes an amazing harper. She's a bard. They're bards, in case you can't tell. This is like this is cartoonishly like children's booky. Yeah, it would be, except for all the sex. Well, the Harper Hall trilogy doesn't actually have any sex in it, except they're on the third one, basically. The rest of it, though, is actually a good intro for kids. Hold on, hold on. So you said they don't really have any sex, except for this part where there's sex. Well, it's the third one, and no one really likes that one because it's not Melanie anymore. It's a new guy. He's a drummer, and no one cares about him. And he just kind of jacks off once. It's, uh, yeah, there's an entire book about this one, uh, uh, dragon lady who basically goes around, uh, vaccinating people, and then her dragon dies. Moretta! Yeah, there's an entire, like, ballad about her, and then they made it into a book. Yeah, Moretta, the Dragon Lady of Pern. That's also a really good one. So is that sort of the, uh, the crux of the issue here? This would be a great, like, young adult book series, except for all, like, the sex and violence and death. It's a totally weird thing, yeah, because on the one hand, it has the it has the melodrama of, of a young adult series, but it's also got all this dragon f***ing in it, which is definitely like, I read it as a teenager, but I shouldn't have. So it's, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird, like, hybrid creature as a result. It just sits in a very strange place in literature, doesn't it? Oh, also, let's get into Anne McCaffrey's weird beliefs about homosexuality. I would love to hear about that. That thing I mentioned before about uh, green dragons and, and other male dragons having sex and the fact that as a result, two male riders will also have sex. Somebody asked Anne McCaffrey about this. And keep in mind that this series started in the 60s. So uh, like 30 or 40 years of equal rights uh, activism had happened in the intervening time. Somebody asked Anne McCaffrey at a Q&A, so what's the deal with the green riders? Do, uh, do the green dragons just automatically pick like the gay guy in, in at the impression or what goes on there? And then Anne McCaffrey says, the green dragons will do their best to pick a gay guy, but if all else fails, being penetrated anally turns you gay. What? So that's that problem solved. What? Yeah. No. If you look up on fan lore, the, uh, the tent peg theory. It turned, what? Yeah. That came out of her mouth? Did she blink? Later on, she walked it back a little bit, but it was still like the fandom like dined out on this for years because it was hilarious and also hilariously misinformed. Getting anally penetrated turns you gay. Yep. She believed this at one point. Wow. How does that work for like, say, you know, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not, no, 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 just, uh, just, just, uh, just reeling that in. Yeah. Just take a moment to process that, Annie. Yeah, just just process it. It's okay. So the dragon fucking can turn you gay. Evidently. So, hmm. Okay, okay, here's a question about dragon sex. Okay. Uh, does it have to be penetrative sex? 
yeah, in the dragon's case itself. Well, right, for the for the dragons, but what about the writers? Does it have to be penetrative sex or does it just involve like reaching reaching a climax? And McCaffrey being the age that she was, I'm going to guess that she considered the only quote unquote real sex to be penetrative sex. Uh-huh. And the thing about dragon sex is when your dragons are having sex, you kind of lose your mind and don't think about what you're doing and just kind of fuck mindlessly. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Hence the consent issues. Right. Right. But I mean, it seems like if if you didn't want to like peg today, but your dragons are fucking, you could just have like mutual hand jobs. No, it probably wouldn't be intense enough. Yeah, this this series also has like a lot of vintage era uh, sexism in terms of gender roles and also in terms of male riders can impress on female dragons except for the gold. But uh, female riders, near as I can tell in the entire series, have never impressed on a male dragon. And I'm going to lead that into my roleplay discussion. Because in the fandom, initially, Anne McCaffrey really did not want anybody to roleplay in her fandom. If you made a website to play a Pern PBEM, for example, you would probably eventually get a cease and desist order. Now, is this is this sort of the same thing where some people will be really against like fan fiction? Is this an early like anti-fanfic thing where it's like an intellectual property concern? Yeah, she was also anti-fanfic, uh, but she really cracked down on it. But eventually she came around to... Uh, being okay with it so long as you didn't use any of her characters' names or use any of her weirs or her her holds. So you had to make, like, all new areas in the world. You had to have, like, quote-unquote weirs. Yeah. Um, or, or you could just make, like, your own weir that was in other part of the world since she had, like, very intricate maps so you could place it pretty well. But could you still use the maps and terminology? Yeah, you could still use the maps and the terminology. You just couldn't be like, well, we're going to go to Ista, Ista Weir today. We're going to go to Fort Weir today. Oh, so you basically had to set up your own civilization on the other side of the planet. Shock of shocks. Most people who were interested in role-playing Pern were generally like 13 to 21-year-old girls. Shocker. A teen girl wants a dragon? There are only a few gold riders. There are like maybe two or three for every weir. And uh, we knew this, so we couldn't all be girls. And uh, so girls started having their characters impress green dragons. And Anne McCaffrey really came down on this for a while until after about a year, she's like, eh, whatever. And she makes it canon that girls can impress greens. Yeah, she actually put it in a book. Yeah, she actually put it in a book that girls can impress greens after that point. But in interviews, she would say, but they still can't impress anything else. But girls being prominent in the fandom and uh, being prominent role players, they were like, well, what if I have a like bisexual girl and I want her to write a blue? And so they had that introduced. And Anne McCaffrey at this point was like, eh, oh, who cares? F*** it. It's fine. Yeah, because I mean, when you get right down to it, saying that men can only impress like certain colors and women can only impress certain colors, it, that really sort of limits you in terms of gender and sexuality expressions. This, this this is a series that had heterosexual people and the occasional, like, two guys f***ing and one of them got turned gay as a result. Keeping in mind that this is a series that started in the 60s. I mean, bisexuality alone seems like, though, it just her a huge wrench into that. Toward the end of her life, um, as the role players got more and more needy and as we demanded, like, I want my girl character to ride a blue dragon. She was like, you know what? Sure. Have, have your fun, kids. I don't care. So that's fascinating. You had fan fiction and fan theories that had to be ratified by the author and canonized. Yes. That's ridiculous. It is. Fandom these days is so much more free than it used to be. I mean, George Lucas really cracked down on slash fan fiction back in the day. Yeah, he had opinions. And Anne McCaffrey had like this Iron Lady control over her fandom. And I mean, you also had like the, in Star Wars, you had like the EU that had to be sort of 
like ratified. There was just there was essentially extended fan fiction that was that was canonized and had to be ratified by really not a very stringent board. Added some fandom history there. That stuff is that stuff is just off the charts. In case you guys were wondering, my character was Sally Anna. She was writer of Green Gwyneth. She was everything you'd ever want in a Mary Sue character that you developed when you were 14. Oh, good. Uh, she had red hair and blue orbs that were eyes. Awesome. And she was simultaneously lonely, but she hid it behind peppiness. She was always kind of distant and flighty and irresponsible. It was a good time. I had a tough girl Digimon original character who dated my favorite character. Ah, she was my favorite Mary Sue. Don't get me started on original characters. Ah, we all had them. We all had them. I created an entire continent of them for Bionicle. Nice. Kit, I, I know you're way up in Canada right now, but I need you to high five me. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so Pern, huh? Pern. Pern is weird. Pern is weird. And that's why the world's not ready for it, huh? I also get the feeling that the world has kind of moved on from the kind of science fiction that Pern inherently was. What with all the non-consensual sex and weird attitudes toward gender roles and the uh, and the weird attitudes toward non-heterosexuals. And yeah, it's it's the sort of thing that you look back on it from a modern lens and you would have to retrofit the f*** out of it to make it into a workable TV series that wouldn't horrifically offend everybody who saw it. It feels like from everything you guys have told me and from everything that I'm remembering about these, that what would make Pern work would be keeping it savage sci-fi. Like that's about as that's about as sci-fi as it gets. It's savage sci-fi because that's something that we don't necessarily have like a big adaptation of it. The last time we tried to do that was John Carter of Mars and that thing flopped hard. At the same time, the sci-fi elements in the later books are so universally beloved by the fandom that to strip them out would, I think, alienate a lot of the built-in fan base for an adaptation. That's fair. And like I said, that like third season finale reveal where you find out that, oh, oh crap, this is sci-fi, that would be a really good season finisher. It's just you have to make everything else before that point work. It's a, it's a, it's just, it's a very complicated, very complicated thing. Yeah, it's, it's really spaghettified by this point. And to make it to make an adaptation work, you would really have to just like pick and choose the elements that you're going to keep. Build a story around that, take certain plot elements from the books. But if you try to adapt the books exactly, you're going to end up with a mess. It'll be a lot like The Raven. It sounds like at the end of the day, like nobody's going to be happy with a Pern adaptation, whatever it is. The, the executives aren't going to get what they want. The fans aren't going to get what they want. Todd McCaffrey probably isn't going to get what he wants. Oh, one more thing I do want to point out. Okay, hit me. Because of the way the dragon mating works, it is nigh impossible to work a love triangle into this. And this is why MTV will, or the CW will never adapt dragon riders into a TV show. Damn it. Actually. Oh, Max got a point. I just want to point at Ferran and his brown dragon and the love triangle that occurs between him and the two goals that initially go to Southern Weir. He gets two golds lusting after him? Yeah, uh, so his brown dragon, uh, he falls in love with a gold 
a gold dragon lady and um and he like wants to be with her but there's this other gold who's in love with him a gold lady and so there's this uh big flight where his dragon takes off and catches the one that he actually likes her gold dragon um only the other girl in her jealousy uh watches this and her dragon is so near flight she takes off after the brown and the maiden gold and uh attacks them and then ends up killing like all three dragons and makes them go between or at least kills the two golds. I think uh, Ferran's brown dragon stays alive. And it's it's like a hugely tragic love triangle. So that's a, that's a pretty specific opinion about, uh, about love triangles when they don't end in polyamorous relationships. Although I do kind of like that plot twist a little more than I just can't choose. No, two dragons are dead. Also in a few of the books, especially after she kind of edited them, the more modern they became, there are several polyamory relationships that kind of open up uh, when they're like, well, my dragon's going to get this. I love you. um, But when my dragon does this, I'm going to probably end up with this guy also. But why don't we just all enjoy it? And so that does happen in a few later books as well. Is that poly or is that just open? I don't know. It might be more open, I guess. Yeah. Wow. This is just a big, big mess, isn't it? It is. And that, that's probably what you're going to get from any really long-running, like, science fiction slash fantasy novel series. Because it's one thing to adapt a trilogy like Lord of the Rings. It's even another thing to try to shoehorn a lot of the Silmarillion into The Hobbit. But The Dragon Rider, this is like 20-plus books. Like, this is, I believe, Warner Brothers option 22 books. There's a lot of stuff in here. A lot of it is jumping around in terms of character, jumping around in terms of plot arc, time period. And as a result... There's just there's no straight one to one adaptation that you can do. It also seems like it'd be bad from a financial standpoint if it suddenly turns into hard sci fi because you'd have to completely revamp all of your sets and props. Yeah, I'm like I'm wondering like if they decide to do a TV adaptation after all, how the hell are they going to budget for all those dragons? Yeah, that's going to be a lot of CG. Like, do you br- at that point do you just bring in Jim Henson's Creature Shop? I think modern television kind of looks down upon the Creature Shop for no good reason. That's too bad. Farscape was great. All right, guys, I think we've thoroughly exhausted this topic. I have learned more than any than than I ever cared to learn about uh, about Pern. Uh, Thank you. And damn both of you. (laughs) You're welcome. So let's wrap up with our additional stone cold facts. Mac, what do you got for us? Uh, That you as a fandom can harass the creator enough to get what you want. Canonized. All right. Kit, what do you got for us? Mike's stone cold fact is that some stories already exist in their ideal format. And taking them out of their ideal format is, at best, a mess. My stone-cold fact is that fantasy series are a lot more complicated than I thought they were. They're so much more complicated. I just... I need to go lie down. All right, everybody. We will see you next time when we present another stone-cold fact, which is Jupiter Ascending deserves to be in the cinematic canon. Until next time, folks. I'm Annie. I'm Kit. And I'm Mac. And we have fought you. Oh, <laughs>